Well, the title of this morning's sermon is He Leads Me. And a few weeks ago, we began a series on Psalm 23. And I told you that I did that in part because I had sat through some wonderful messages at two different camps covering the totality of Psalm 23. And I thought, you know, that's put a lot of thoughts into my own mind. It's been very encouraging to me. It's been something that has been very beneficial to me to look at afresh and to look at in detail. This psalm, which is one of the most famous psalms, but a psalm that if you're not careful, you can rattle your way through and have memorized without really meditating on or finding nourishment from the truths that are contained in each of these different phrases within Psalm 23. So we decided to, we, I guess you had no part in it, (laughs) although I hope you were praying, (laughs) But I decided let's, let's go through Psalm 23 as a whole church and to give me the opportunity to study out and, and teach some of these passages that I had heard others uh, teach. And it's been a very beneficial thing uh, for me, and it's all about me, isn't it? <laughs> but we observed when we started this series in verse 1 that it acts as a summary statement for the entire psalm or the rest of Psalm 23. And we sort of paraphrased that first verse is saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And so we looked at it from that perspective that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and that I shall not want really means I lack nothing. I have everything that I need. And that's not because of anything that I've done. It's not because of any provision for myself or effort of my own. It's because the good shepherd has undertaken to provide everything that I need for every facet Of my life. And so, as we looked at that first verse, we looked at his provision for our past, his provision in the present, and his future provision for every spiritual need that we have. And so, we observe that just as shepherds provide everything that sheep need, the Lord undertakes to meet your every need. And of course, with the primary focus being on your spiritual needs. And then we noted that the remainder of Psalm 23 or in the remainder of Psalm 23, David, he elaborates further about exactly what the Lord's complete care entails. And so we started with the first clause and we looked at, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And we observed that it has to do with providing this place of rest. And that makes is better understood as he he makes possible. He makes it possible for me to rest, but he doesn't force me to rest. As the good shepherd, he brings me to a place where when I'm operating in dependence on him, I can experience the rest of his green pastures. And you know, I was talking to one of our fellow church members who's in the hospital, and we were talking about this psalm. And when you're suffering in the hospital and you're enduring a lot of pain, it's nice to find some comfort in thinking about the rest, the peaceful rest that God can make possible even in the face of that trial. Well, that brings us to the next statement of God's provision, or how does God undertake for our every need? And the next statement it leads us to is, He leads me beside the still water. So He makes me to lie down in green pastures, and we'll continue here today with, He leads me beside the still waters. Hence the title here this morning, He leads me. So if you haven't already turned to Psalm 23, I think this morning we'll read through the whole psalm. And then we'll dive into just that clause, Lord willing, this morning. I love that when I say that. Let's, you know, turn if you haven't already. 
everyone's already there and I'm the only one who's not there. Psalm 23. Um, many of you know this, so let's just go through this. Why don't we read through it together and, and say it aloud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let's take a little bit closer look at this second part of verse 2. He leads me beside the still waters. So as we observed last week, he is a continued reference to the Lord. And we won't go into it in the same detail, but the word used for Lord is a carryover there from, well, it's not, he doesn't have you, it's been replaced. We don't have Lord, we have he, but it's a reference back to the use of the word Lord from verse 1. And that's carrying over then the Lord's personal name or Yahweh. This is the name that God gave himself and we went into that in greater detail last study when we had Psalm 23, verse 2a. And so you can look at that online or listen to it online if you want a little bit more discussion about that. But it brings about or reminds us that this is a personal God. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. So we have that language there in the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd. Now he makes me. We have another personal pronoun there. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He, again, our personal God, Yahweh, leads me, again, a personal pronoun, beside the still waters. And so you have that personal nature of this psalm brought out here again in the second main clause that we'll look at of these specific clauses bringing out how that because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. So then we get to the heart of this. He leads me. So when we look at this word leads, it means to guide or escort, but it's more than that. There's a lot more to the word than that. To guide or escort, sure, that would be our normal understanding of leads, but it includes this further understanding of to guide or escort with a mind towards refreshing or giving rest to. So when you add that to the understanding of leading, it's not just leading, it's God leading with a specific outcome or motive in mind. His motive is to provide refreshment, to give a place of rest to provide rest to you. And so as he makes it possible for me to lie down in green pasture, same motive. God, being this loving God who has this deep, intense interest in you, wants to provide this place of rest for you. And so then the same idea carries over with this word leads where it's leading or directing or guiding or escorting with this mindset of providing refreshment And how many of you sitting here this morning, this is a psalm written by a man of faith about a personal relationship with his God. How many of you could use a little bit of rest this morning? Show of hands. We got one. All right, good. One person needs rest. I'm raising my hand because I've been on the road for days and days and days and days. You know, my son has taken to singing on the road again. (laughs) 
Sorry to invoke Willie Nelson in our sermon this morning, but but life is weary. Even when life is full of energy in terms of spiritual energy as God provides for us and he undertakes for us, he sometimes has our, our soul in a place where it's overflowing and it's bursting, but yet physically, our physical body is weary. Sometimes our spiritual body, our spiritual, or the spiritual part of our body is weary too. Our soul is weary. And life can knock you down. It can break your heart. Life can wear you down. And that's why there's verses about not becoming weary and well-doing because life can be very tiring. And so when you think about a God who sees that, he understands that, he knows that, he knows every fiber of you, he knows every hair on your head, and he knows exactly what you need. He says, you know what? I know that you need rest at time, but that rest is going to be something that I'm going to provide for you as I lead you beside the still waters. And so he's leading with a purpose in mind, and God promises to lead and direct his sheep several places in Scripture. This is not going to be exhaustive, but I'll give you just a couple of them here. In Psalm chapter 37, you're real close, but I've already put it up on the screen, I guess. But Psalm 37, 23 through 24 says, The steps of a good man, we're talking about the leading or the directing of God in our lives, they're ordered or directed by the Lord. There's Yahweh again there. We see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God's personal name. And he delights in his way. God delights in the way of the one that is following him. Though he fall, meaning the person of faith at times stumbles, isn't looking to the Lord, isn't walking with their eyes fixed on the author and finisher of their faith. That's true of you and I at times. But when that's true, though he falls, and it does happen, He shall not be utterly cast down because the Lord, again, Yahweh, the personal name of God, he's holding him with his hand. And you think about, could there be a more comforting passage of Scripture for the one who is so prone to doing his own thing? I'm speaking of myself here, but maybe this is true of you too. Where the God says, I'm delighted when you follow my way. And I'm going to direct your way when you're looking to me. But I'm also going to hold you in my hands even when you're not. Man, it's just enough to make you want to tear up, isn't it? That, that the God of the universe would care enough about you to have that kind of a relationship with you. And some of you young people here, you're on the cusp of stepping out into life where you're living life independent from your parents. And as you go about doing that, you're going to find that life is hard you're going to find that things were actually pretty darn good at home. That things were pretty easy at home. There's many times, well, maybe not many, but that's maybe an exaggeration, but several times as a young adult, I found myself in tears just being overwhelmed by life. And you know, sometimes those are the exact thing God's, God needs in your life. He needs to use those in your life even though he doesn't direct us to all of those places. Sometimes we take ourselves to those places and they're exactly contrary to his will and his plan and his purpose for our lives. But yet we find ourselves in those places anyway. And in those moments, God says, I can even work this together for your good because I can teach you something. I can teach you that without me, there's no hope. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no purpose. There's no fulfillment. There's no contentment. There's absolute nothingness. The world is a wasteland. 
And I can show you that when you find yourself in those places. I can teach you in those moments if you'll just turn back to me and learn something from this and draw nearer to me then and let me now direct your ways. But I'll tell you what, sometimes you have this mindset that apart from the protective, nourishing environment that the Lord has set up, and there's several aspects to that, but our home, our parents' guidance is one of the safety nets that God has put in our lives. So we step outside of that, and now that is missing. The local church, a body of believers that we can be a part of, that is a protective measure that is there for our good. That's not the only purpose of it, but it's one of the purposes is to encourage us, to convict us, to come alongside of us, to, to give us words of wisdom, to, to be there for us, to observe when we're doing our own thing and to maybe come alongside with a pat on the back or a hug or a word of encouragement, a scripture, a verse from the word of God that could help maybe shake the cobwebs out of our thinking a little bit. Hearing the teaching of the Word of God, that's a protective measure. That's for your good. And so oftentimes as young people kind of move on to the next phase in life, oftentimes they want to explore that independence by separating themselves from those safety mechanisms that God has put in their lives. And invariably they find that the, green isn't, the grass isn't greener in those other pastures that they're seeking to find nourishment. The water isn't sweeter in those other pools that they're seeking to find nourishment in. They come to find out that that's stagnant water, that in fact it makes them sick to their stomach, that that grass they thought was greener as we observed last time was in fact artificial turf. And it looked really green, but it was fake. And it was phony and it could never satisfy. And man, I do not know how I got off on this. I probably saw some of you young people this morning and I thought, man... I have a heart for you. My heart goes out to you. I know you're in places of transition and just know that you're not going to, don't do yourself, you're not doing yourself any favors to separate yourself from everything that has actually been protecting you and helping to keep you safe. Stay in close contact with your families. Stay a part of a local church. Make time for it. The the world will throw all kinds of things in front of you, some of them overtly sinful, many of them not sinful at all, but just a distraction. And they'll make you so busy that all of a sudden you'll have the sense that I don't have time for those things. But those are the very things that will contribute to you redeeming, in a spiritual sense, the time that God has given you, which is fleeting and precious. So that's the end of that little segue. But God's holding you in in his hands even when that isn't true, but he wants you to be sensitive when you get off track so that you don't keep going and doubling down on your mistakes. Life is full of mistakes. I tell my, well, I guess I tell my daughter this primarily. I should probably tell my son more, but I said, no, I don't expect you to be perfect. I do expect you, though, to recognize when you're heading in the wrong direction and to be willing to acknowledge that and to quit walking down, I call it the prickler path, the path that looks green, but it's full of prickers, and to just turn around and go a different direction. I do expect that. Uh, God doesn't expect perfection either. He understands that we're flawed and we're broken. We're cursed by sin. Sin, We have a a sin nature inside of us. We're attacked constantly by the attacks of the evil one, that we're living in a crooked and perverse world. He doesn't expect that we'll be perfect. He says victory is available all of the time. And if you just keep your eyes on me, you would never go into those places. But he realizes that that isn't true. And so there's so many passages about being sensitive to that and being restored to a place we ha- where we have a right mind and right thinking again and our eyes are redirected and refocused on the thing that matters 
most. I guess I wasn't ready to let that go. All right, Proverbs 16.9, another passage about how God promises to lead and direct his sheep. It says this, a man's heart plans his way. That's our natural inclination is that a man naturally wants to plan his own way, but the Lord is the one that directs his steps if it's operating or functioning the way that God intends. And Pro- Proverbs 20.24 20, says, a man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? And what that's really talking about this is stop trying to understand everything. If God is, if his ways are unsearchable and his judgments, his, his ways are past, his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are past finding out, I'm butchering that, but something to that effect. I gotta revisit that one. But if God is infinite and his, and his ways are impossible for us to fully understand and if God is the one directing our life, then why do you have this sense that you should understand what God is doing? Think about that for a second. If, if you have a heart that says, God, I want you to direct my paths. I want you to lead me. I want, I want you to be the one who's guiding me. But at the same time, if I recognize that the one who is leading and guiding is infinite, that he has an eternal perspective that I could never have fully in this, in this life. In eternity, I will understand more fully. But, but for now, there's so many things about God that I can't wrap my mind around. But if that sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God, that whose ways are uns- unknowable to me, they're, they're past finding out for me. If he's directing my life, then why should I at the same time expect that I would know what he's doing or why he's doing it or that he owes me some kind of an explanation even? Isn't it true that we put these significant limitations on how God can work in our lives or how he can use us because we insist that, God, I want you to lead, but I also, I want it to make sense. I want, I want you to show me what you're doing. And, and once you've run it by me, and you've explained what you're doing, assuming that your plan now makes sense to me, then I'll go along with it. You ever been there before? (laughs) Where you're saying, I trust you, but not really. I trust you, but not fully. I'll let you lead, but only if it's a place I naturally want to go anyway. And God is just like, child, Oh, child, dear, sweet child, (laughs) can't you trust me? Why do you have such small faith? Thankfully, the smallest amount of faith in the right object is all that it takes to be a part of God's family. But God, he wants us to have a bigger faith. He wants us to recognize who our God is. And as we see who our God is and we see how big he is, he wants that to grow and enhance and help my unbelief, Lord. Make my faith bigger so that I can progressively over time learn to step out and follow you in directions that are uncomfortable, in places that are unfamiliar, even when I cannot see what God is doing. And that's the real definition of faith. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. To walk into a place that I already see or I already understand or I already want to go, that's not really faith. Faith is trusting God to lead and direct me into the unknown to the unfamiliar, to the uncomfortable, to all those places I wouldn't naturally want to go. And so if you think, and and, and only you can do this for yourself, but I'm saying take a moment and even ask yourself, is my life 
naturally characterized by comfort and familiarity. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But is my life primarily defined by familiarity? And if it is, the question is, is God really having the freedom to stretch you and to bring you and to mold you and to conform you and to, and to lead you to places that you wouldn't normally go? And the answer is no. It's the awkward and the uncomfortable and the unfamiliar. That's where God's doing his best work in you. And that's probably a wrong way to say that, but it's never going to be, it's never, it's not about feeling like this is, this is exactly what I naturally would feel inclined to do. <laughs> what you naturally feel inclined to do is very rarely beneficial to you. What you naturally feel inclined to do when you should be taking a, wa- a walk is to, you naturally feel inclined to flip your legs up in a lazy boy, right? What you naturally feel inclined to eat is generally not healthy for you. What you naturally feel inclined to spend your money on generally isn't that wise. Need I go on? You're not a very good guide for your own life. And so that, that's why God is saying, I want to be the guide. I want to direct you. I want to lead you. And that's the sense of these verses and this clause that we're, leading, we're talking about here. He leads me. He directs and escorts me with a mind toward providing for me, refreshing me, and giving me rest. And so the question becomes, how does God lead his sheep. So it says he leads me and we're ha- using this metaphor of a shepherd leading a sheep, but how does God lead his sheep? Well, he leads his sheep primarily in a few different ways that came to my mind, but he leads them primarily through his word. And we have a number of verses we could have gone to, but this is one that I learned when I was young. Psalm 119:105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the word of God that directs us. It gives us a sense of what is right. And as we understand what is right, it can direct and guide us as we go through life. That's why you could properly refer to this as a guidebook for your life. As God has revealed to you all the things that were necessary for a life of godliness, a life that would be lived within his will as directed by him. He revealed that to it. We call it revelation. It's the revelation of God to man and he revealed it to us over time until the canon of scripture was completed and we had at our fingertips the word of God, the Bible, which we have access to all of the time. Yet, unfortunately, we don't access it all of the time. It's sad in some ways because imagine having a guidebook that would give you the answers to the questions you had, but not taking the time to read it or take direction from it. And imagine that that guidebook would lead to the perfect life possible, the best life possible, having it available to you, a treasure that if you described it in those words without explaining that it was the Bible, you'd have people clamoring to get their hands on it. If this was the newest fad that would go even through our country, God pray that that would become the latest fad that would go through our country, that we'd have a sense of a revival and an interest in the Word of God. But if you were to just market something that would be a guidebook for life that would produce the best life possible, you have people write your best life kind of books 
and they become number one bestsellers as millions of people throng to get their hands on a copy of a book that would provide them with their best life possible. And the guidebook to your best life possible is right here. It's available for free. It's not even, some of the older versions aren't even copyrighted anymore. You can print them off, copy it, give as many as you want it out. Uh, readily accessible on your phone, accessible uh, in the internet, accessible in paper form, the number one most printed book anywhere in the world. And yet, oftentimes, it's just collecting dust. But the point is that God wants to lead us. He wants to direct us. And the primary way he does that is through his word. The question is, do you care about his word? Will we put the same value on the word of God that he puts on it? He says it's so valuable that not one punctuation point will ever be lost from it. He says, I will undertake to preserve that my word will never be lost The question is, do you care about it? Do you want to know more about it? Will you avail yourself of opportunities even this, like this morning you made a choice to come out and hear the teaching of the Word of God, to fellowship with other people of faith? Gold star. Great choice. But will you do that consistently so that you can take in the Word of God on a consistent basis? Now, how else does God lead his sheep? The other way he leads his sheep, or another way he leads his sheep, is through the Holy Spirit. In our day, we have the privilege and the blessing of the moment of salvation being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Ephesians tells us that we're sealed with the Spirit of promise. That God sends His Spirit as a down payment, as a proof or an evidence in some ways, that we're His own. And that as we have that guarantee of our salvation through the Spirit of God, which now lives and abides inside of us, that the Spirit of God wants to undertake to direct in our lives. And John talks about that here as he's recording the words of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to leave, I'm going to send the Spirit of God in my place. So he says this in John 16, verse 13, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, what will he do? What can, we, what can we count on? The Spirit of God, one of the ministries, many ministries of the Spirit of God. He directs, he leads, he protects, he undertakes. He, he equips, he convicts. Many, many different ministries of the Holy Spirit. We could do a, a study on that. I can't think of them all right now, but I know there's at least 14 of them. He restrains, he teaches. But in any event, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you. There will be the Spirit of God will be used within you to guide you and direct you. He will not speak on his own authority, but at whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. I'm going to send you a helper though. I'm leaving. I'm going to send you a helper, but I'm coming again. That's how the story ends. I'm coming again. And I'll redeem you unto myself so that where I am there you Maybe also. And he says, comfort one another with those, with those kind of words. Now, the other way that God leads his sheep is through human influences. That's the third one that came to mind. Now, when he gives instructions, Paul writing to Timothy gives instructions about, you know, qualifications of people who are going to act as even church leadership and elder positions or deacon positions, that they would be examples, though, to the flock so that God could lead and direct in your life through 
human influences, human examples. But here, Paul could be speaking to, and he is speaking to, all believers. And he's saying in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he's saying, imitate me. Now, as you imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. So the real instruction here is be an imitator of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that directly another time. But this time, he says, imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. And so we have this human influences of various kinds, of various different sorts within the family of faith that God wants to use to guide and direct and lead in your life, to lead you to the places that God wants you to go to be of benefit to you. And there's many different ways that that plays itself out. It plays itself out in friendships. It plays itself out in uh, teaching over the pulpit or pastors or elders or deacons. It plays itself out with Sunday school teachers or parents who are instructing and guiding their children and grandparents and aunts and uncles. It plays itself out in so many different ways if people are willing to look to the Lord and if they're looking to the Lord and letting the Lord work in their lives, then they can be a testimony or a positive influence on the other one another's that God has put in their lives. See, God has designed a plan where he uses people to benefit and minister to and encourage and lead and direct and undertake in the lives of others. Now, I don't know why he did that. But he chose to use us if we're willing to be used of him as empowered by his spirit to produce a life through us that we could never produce. And the reason we could never produce it is because it's a supernatural eternal way of living a god god's way of living we could never produce that but god living inside of us could produce that through us if we would let him and the primary mission that he has in our lives is to work through us to impact one another and so you look around look at some of the one another's in your life we look in the mirror too often we're too self-focused But as we focus on him, he's going to cause us to have an interest and to focus on one another. Look around. Who are these people? The one another's that God has put in your lives. Do you even know them? Would you take a moment to get to know them? Would you make time for them? Would you care about them? Would you pray for them? Would you invest the substance of your life into their lives? What else are you going to invest the substance of your life into? You talk about this, you're given this quantity of this hard to describe, but this substance, this essence of life, that's the only asset you really have, and you've been given it by the Lord. And he says, I want to direct you. I want to direct your thinking. I want to get your focus on me so that you will want to use up yourself, the substance of what it is to be alive, that you want to use that up in a way that would bring me glory, in a way that would lift me up, in a way that would benefit others. So then you look around with a servant-mindedness as we have Jesus Christ for our ultimate example of what it is to be a servant, and you would look at one another. You would look at the other people that God has brought into your sphere of influence, and you would say, God, how do you want to use me today? That's how you would start the day. Not, how can I use today to glorify myself or to promote myself or to advance myself? Now, don't get the sense that I'm saying there's never a place for recreation. There's never a place for hobbies. There's never a place for career advancement. There's never a place for uh, thinking about planning 
wisely for your financial future, for uh, being concerned about things happening in your community or in, your, or in, or in the nation. Uh, that, that's not the point. The point is that the substance of your life was given to you as a precious gift from God and he wants to use you. He wants to lead and direct you through his spirit to invest that into people, your fellow sheep. Now, not with a mindset of look what I've done, look how much I care about people or look how I can do this in my own strength. You might do it to some extent in your own strength. You might do it just because you now feel guilty. (laughs) If you're doing it from a sense of guilt or obligation or fear or shame or any of those reasons, it might last temporarily, but that's not the way to go about it. It's to pray about it and say, Lord, give me your heart. Give me your eyes. Give me your vision. And as he leads in your life and he undertakes in your life, his vision and his purposes are going to become your vision and your goals and your objectives. And the way he sees people is going to be the way you see people. And so then naturally, through the power of his spirit working inside of you, you're going to start to invest more and more into the lives of the people around you. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you do that. You don't pump that out through your flesh. You do that as led and directed by God. But one of the ways he leads you is through human examples and human influences. And so those are the people that you want to be looking at or even rubbing elbows with, people that would encourage you in your faith and be a positive influence on your life. Now I'll tell you what happens naturally. Instead of seeking out people that you could invest some time in or, or come alongside of or spend some life with because they're such a positive example for how they're letting the Lord work in their, in their lives and it's, it's something that is encouraging to you, we naturally gravitate and spend our times seeking out our time, seeking out the people who we can relate to in worldly terms most easily. The people who have the same interests in us. The people who talk the same talk as us. They have the same lingo. They have the same interests and hobbies as us. And so we seek out those people and pretty soon we have all these little groups of people that are not drawn together by the encouragement in in the faith, encouragement in Christ, encouragement uh, about imitating their imitation of as Christ is being revealed in them through his spirit. But all these different pockets of people that are aligned together even within a local church based on none of that but based on geography, based on politics, based on personal interests and hobbies. Hobby horses, I would say, more often than not. And so that's how we align things. And that's not right. That's not God's plan at all. It's for us to be a body where the whole body is functioning as every part does its part and every part has a unique gift or a unique contribution to the whole body. And the whole thing is tightly joined together. Well, you can't do that by consistently never coming to, even coming to church with a thought of, Lord, help me to meet somebody new or talk to somebody new or have follow up with somebody I haven't talked to in a while. If you just let your natural instincts happen, you'll just naturally gravitate to the same thing over and over and over again. And it's not completely bad. I'm just saying that you'll miss out on the way that God intended things to do. Now the question is, does God force you to follow? So how does he lead his sheep through his word, his sheep, through his word, through, his whole, through the Holy Spirit, and through human influences? Does God force you to follow the leading and the direction that he has in his life? And the answer is, of course, no. You know that for a fact. <laughs> you know that because you've been to places where God clearly did not bring you. 
And so if you're in that place and God, didn't bring, and God clearly didn't bring you there, then he clearly allows it. It's possible for you to exercise your own volition and to choose not to follow his leading in your life. Now, does God ever lead and direct you to a place that is contrary to his word? That's inconsistent with his will? Never. And so if you find yourself in those places, that's not God who brought you there. That was your own volition that chose to not follow the path he had for you, but to go there instead. So there's this aspect of positive volitional response is how I describe it. There's probably other ways to describe it. But you have to exercise a positive volitional response. You have to choose to let the Lord lead and direct in your life. You have to say, I need a shepherd, for starters, and without you I lose my way. You have to conclude that. And so if he's the good shepherd and without him I lose my way and I want to be led by you, now Lord, lead me. Direct me. Is that your prayer? You have to have that heart. That's the positive volitional response. And when we have that heart, we're going to have the focus that's right. Our focus is going to be on the Lord. And as we're looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, as we're looking vertically, as we're walking with a vertical heavenly mindset, God is naturally, through the power of his spirit working in your life, he's going to direct you to the still waters, in the paths that he has for you, to the green pastures. That's going to be the natural byproduct of it. But God doesn't force you to follow him. He doesn't force you to follow his direction for your life. Here's the options. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's the alternative. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what's the byproduct of acknowledging him? He shall direct your path. Not he might direct your path. He will direct your path. But what's the condition of this? You have to acknowledge him. If you are unwilling to acknowledge him and say, Lord, you know best. I can't lead myself. I've made a mess of everything that I've tried to direct in. My life is a dumpster fire when I'm leading. I don't want to do that anymore, Lord. I want to follow you. Direct me. Guide me. Some of you say, I've asked for that and he doesn't he doesn't direct. Then the question becomes, are you really having a heart that wants to be led? That might not even be true, that you think you're deceived. You think you are, but you're not. Secondly is where are you looking for the direction? Are you looking for it in his word? Are you looking for it through the leading of his spirit? Are you prayerfully looking for it? Are you looking through it through godly human influences in your life? That's how God leads. So if you say, I want to be led, but you're excluding all of those things from your life, you're quenching the Spirit, you're not allowing the Spirit to lead, you have no interest in other believers or the influences they could be in your lives, you have no influence to arrange yourself under anyone or be a part of anything where you're going to subject yourself to any kind of direction. You won't, you won't take in the authority from the Word of God or the direction from the Word of God. You don't even acknowledge it as an authority in your life. You have no interest in it. You have no time for it. And you say, I want the Lord to lead. Those are just words. Those are just empty words. That's not a genuine, positive, volitional response to the Lord because that would be accompanied then by if you have a desire to be led of the Lord, then you would 
have a desire for the, the ways in which God leads your life. So God doesn't force this on you. You choose to acknowledge him or ignore him. Those are the two choices. So in all your ways, you either acknowledge him or what's the alternative? You ignore him. You include him in your thinking and in your thoughts or you exclude him. Those are the choices every day, every moment of every day. Your way will never end in success if you do not do that. If you reject his way, you will experience a life of practical, not positional, but practical death as you're wasting life separate from him. Every minute that is spent separate from him is the equivalent of practical death, wasted time, time that cannot be redeemed, time that is lost forever. And here's, I think, a fascinating reminder of trying to do things your way and the the negative side effect of that. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but... Its end is the way of death. Is that a great reminder or what? It seems right. You note that it says, it doesn't say there is a way that seems wrong to a man, but the end is death, spiritual death, relational death in that, in that context, separation from God in terms of not walking in fellowship with God, not experiencing that intimacy of relationship. It says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. That should really be an eye-opener to you because it's no surprise that there's a way that you know is wrong, that your conscience is screaming out and you're still doing it anyway and that that leads to separation from God, that that destroys that intimacy of relationship with God because you're rejecting God and rebellion in that moment. We're talking about relationally here, not, not position. Practically speaking, Everybody would say that's true. But there's a way that seems right that has that same outcome. And why? Because human goodness, this sense of human morality, our our own evaluation of what's good and right and valuable, human value judgments, those are very often leading to separation too because they're not being directed by the Lord. They're being self-directed. And when it's self-directed, it excludes him. When it excludes him, it's the practical, experience, practical equivalent of death in that moment or not experiencing that intimacy of fellowship that God wants to have with you. Now, does that mean that God ever quits trying or gives up on you? So just because you won't do things God way, God's way, just because he doesn't force you to do it, does that mean he ever quits trying to lead or direct you? And the answer is no. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a variety of aspects of you could refer to, and it's true of justification, it's true of progressive sanctification too, though, that God is working a good work in you and he wants to complete it. It's also true that he'll finish that work through glorification, so you almost have all three tenses of salvation there in that verse. No, he's not going to give up. He's going to keep fighting. He's going to keep pursuing He's that kind of a God. A little bit later in Philippians it says, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the idea there is is because it is God who is at work in you is how some translations have it. Because it is God who is at work in you. No, he's working in you. But you have to realize that you can't lead and be led at the same time. He leads me. 
But you, he can't lead you if you're leading yourself. You can't lead and be led at the same time. And what is normally the thing that's getting in the way? It's pride. Thinking you know better than God knows. Having too high of a view of yourself and your own direction for your own life. And pride is incompatible with letting God lead. And I found this verse, it's really amazing as you're thinking about being led. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. But what's, what's the characteristic of the one who's being led and the one who's being taught? <laughs> They're humble. You can't be taught you, you, if you're not teachable, it's the same thing. If you're not humble, you can't be taught. If you're not humble, you're not going to follow somebody else. You're not going to let somebody else lead because you're going to say, I know the best, the best path possible. I'm the one who's going to lead. And so then the question is, are you willing to be led? Or are you letting pride get in the way? Now, of course, we talked about this last time. He leads me. It brings out, again, this personal, intimate, and relational nature of this. David has this very personal view of God. And he's focused on the personal relationship with God, his own personal relationship with God, and God's provision for him individually. He's not talking about God's general provision for the whole world. He's talking about God's provision for him, for me, a personal pronoun. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down. And as we mentioned previously, abstract faith is useless. Personal faith, though, is life-changing. At a moment in time, a point where you decide to put your confidence in what Christ did for you on Calvary, and then as a process over time, as you continue to have trust and put your faith in what God wants to do in your life. Now, he leads me, and it ends with beside the still waters. And beside, it refers to location or proximity to a source of water. The shepherd continues to be the one that's in focus, though. He leads me, but where does he lead me? He leads me beside still waters. And that word beside, again, refers to location. It is only the shepherd who knows where the still waters are located. So that's why it's necessary to follow him. The shepherd guides the sheep to the place of refreshment. But the shepherd doesn't force the sheep to drink. And we've talked about that when we talked about being led. He doesn't force you to be led. It reminds me, I had a very fun illustration of this. Recently here on my, on my trip out west, as I was coming back, I had an experience with a horse named Slim. And if you're a bigger guy like me, they put you on a bigger horse named Slim. They kind of size you up to a big guy. And then tongue-in-cheek, he happened to be named Slim. But as, as I was riding Slim, I'm not a horseman, I'll tell you that in advance. But as I was riding Slim, he was a very happy-go-lucky guy. Pretty much would do what he was supposed to do, would do his job. But the cowboy, Brad, that was leading this excursion, we got to a point on the ride where there was a stream. It wasn't much of a stream, but it was still water. And he said, about, there were six of us, but three, three or four of you at a time, ride the horse up to the water so they can get a drink. And so the first three went, and I was a part of the second group, and I nudged him up to the water, and Slim wouldn't drink the water. 
All the other horses did. Slim determined he didn't need any water. But the point is I could lead him to water. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Slim wasn't in. He wasn't into it. He didn't want to drink the water. And so I thought, I was thinking about this psalm and where we were at here, and I thought, you know, God leads us to still water, but he doesn't make us take in that refreshment. He doesn't make us drink. And Slim, Slim wouldn't drink. Uh, about her horse, her horse was uncooperative and lazy. <laughs> I guess she thought if she's paired up with me in life, she might as well be paired up with a horse like that too. <laughs> Uh, he leads me beside, so he brings me near the water, but it's the still water. It refers to waters of quietness, brooks of quiet waters, refreshing streams. The primary focus here is a safe place of refreshment. This safe place to drink is, supar- is surprisingly hard to find. A safe place to drink for animals is surprisingly hard to find. And the reason being is that it can't be a stagnant pool, but also it can't be a rapidly flowing stream. It has to be instead a place where water flows gently and the quality of the water is critical. It's not just any water that the Lord leads us to. He leads us to water that can refresh our souls. He doesn't just bring us to water. We naturally go to water. We'll find water. But if it's up to us, we're going to find pools of water that are unfit to drink, filled with bacteria that have been sitting there with no movement in them. Not fresh at all. Or we'll naturally hear the sound of water and we'll be like, I need refreshment. I need refreshment. I'm I'm thirsty. In my life, I'm thirsty. And so we hear water rushing and raging in the distance and we're drawn to that as the solution to our thirst. And you get to raging water and it's full of danger. But that's the thing your ears pick up on and you say, my soul is desperate. It's thirsty. I need refreshment. And I'm going to undertake to provide that refreshment for myself and that's what we naturally do. So we're drawn to either stagnant bacteria filled water that will hurt us or to rough water that is rapidly flowing that will drown us or suck us down the rapids. Suck us right into the river. That's the kind of water we'll bring ourselves to and God's like, no, I will lead you beside still quiet waters, perfect waters, waters that can refresh your soul that can refresh you and it's funny because human sheep often endanger themselves by seeking refreshment from polluted or dangerous sources I read that it's a hopeless approach to finding refreshment to try to do it apart from the shepherd the shepherd leads you to the still waters this is a fascinating passage in Jeremiah Jeremiah 2.13 for my people have committed two evils Now, this is in the context of Israel, but there's some application to us here. What was the first? They have forsaken me. How does he describe himself? God describes himself here as the fountain of living waters. What did they do instead? They tried to find water from a source of their own making. They have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So they sought to find refreshment somewhere else, but it couldn't satisfy That's me paraphrasing there. It wasn't capable of satisfying. I was the fountain of living water. They forsook me for what? For a substitute that could not satisfy. Isn't that true of our lives? 
When we're not trusting the Lord, not looking to the Lord, we're forsaking the living water for water that can't satisfy. Water that will actually harm us. What a fascinating passage because it's so true. It's so often the case. And so instead of trying to find refreshment from waters that are polluted, the water that we should be seeking is the water from the Word of God that is never polluted. The Word of God is pure. The words of the Lord are pure words, Psalm 12, 6. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's the place for the pure water, is the word of God. The first was Proverbs 35. Every word of God is pure. Sheep cannot survive without water, just as a man of faith cannot survive without spiritual refreshment. And spiritual refreshment primarily comes from the still waters of the word of God again. I can't say this enough. That's where the refreshment comes from. Jesus says this in Matthew 4, 4. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what renews a man. Romans ten seventeen says, Then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans twelve two says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is renewed through the word of God of God. You can't enjoy the refreshing streams that God wants to provide his children without first drinking of the water that Jesus alone provides. So we're going to talk about that here for a second as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. God wants you to drink the water that he alone provides, but you have to first believe in him. So when we celebrate communion, we are remembering what God has done for us. We're remembering his sacrifice for us. And when you're thinking about God providing refreshment in your Christian life for his children as he provides the refreshment from his word, from, through his spirit, through human influences. And as he does that, God provides continually for the needs of his children as he continues to lead and direct them to places of refreshment, just as he brought them to a place where they could rest in the green pastures, a place where they could eat in the green pastures, a place where they can drink and be nourished beside the still waters. But God can't do that for you unless you're first his child. You have to drink of the water that he alone provides first in order for him to for you to be a sheep that is in his pasture, a sheep that is in his sheepfold, a sheep of which he is your shepherd. For him to be your shepherd, you have to drink of the water that he provides in that context too. And Jesus is explaining this in John four thirteen through 14 to the woman at the well. And he answered and he said to her, whoever drinks of this water, and he's speaking of actual water from a well, Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And that's the way that Jesus is talking about putting your faith or believing in my substitutionary death on your behalf. In John chapter 3, we have it on the wall here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus is saying, I'm your sacrifice. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to be the Redeemer, the one who pays the debt that you could never pay. I'm going to be the substitute, the one that is sacrificed in the the place of the guilty. I'm going to be the perfect spotless lamb of God who dies in your place. And whoever believes in him, meaning whoever puts his confidence and trust in him, will not perish, which is the outcome of all those who reject Jesus Christ, 
but instead will have everlasting life. He says, if you drink of the water that I can provide, you'll never thirst again. So friends, as we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, it's a remembrance of that sacrifice that Jesus had for you. Jesus died in your place. And as we do the Lord's Supper or we celebrate communion once a month, that's how often we choose to do it. It says as often as you do this, you could do it more often. We do it on the first Sunday of the month, but as we do it, we're remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. And so we have the wafer that is symbolic of his body that was broken for us. We have the juice that's symbolic of the blood that was shed for us. But friends, there's nothing to remember if you haven't first drank the water at a point in time where you decided to put your confidence in what Jesus did for you on the cross. So as the bread is passed and the cups are passed, just let it pass you by because it would be dishonest in a sense to remember something that you've never put your trust in to begin with. This is ultimately a remembrance. Now if you have put your faith in Christ, this is a good time to just be reminded of just how much he loves you and just how much he did for you in dying in your place. But also as we've been speaking about how much he continues to do for you day in, day out as he wants to provide for your every need. At this time, I'd ask the elders to come forward and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you want to take a moment to...